Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's The Monkey Show. And as we start the new academic year in this special edition in association with Rutledge, we've got a host of special guests to think through how we build student experience back better. It's all coming up. You know, my kids sit all day watching relatively low budget, but very relatively well produced material that is engaging and so on. You know, narrow casting is here, but they don't pay for it and nor do I. And there's something really important built in here in terms of our assumptions of value that are going to be very difficult to kind of get across. Welcome to The Monkey Show, your weekly way into all the news, policy and analysis for higher education. I'm Monkey's editor, Debbie McVitie, and in this special edition in association with Rutledge, we're talking about the student experience, the good, the bad and the ugly during the pandemic, and how we build it back in the year ahead. Over on the site, we've got an exclusive discount and Rutledge titles for Monkey Show listeners, so head over there after the show and fill your boots. Now, back in July, it was a blow for universities, if not really a surprising one, that national student survey results have taken a bit of a nosedive during the COVID-19 pandemic. Notwithstanding enormous amounts of hard work from academics, professional teams and SUs to keep the student experience going in some form, it's clear that students have had a very mixed experience. But we've learned a lot as well about online learning, about student engagement, about the vital importance of student community and social learning, and about student well-being. Now, students are coming back to campus, for the moment at least, But what exactly are they coming back to? And how will their educational experience of the last 18 months shape or change their hopes or expectations and their preparedness for the year ahead? I think this isn't just about putting things in place that will help students reconnect or catch up in the short term. There are potentially some quite fundamental shifts in how we think about and understand the student experience, shifts that have implications for research and pedagogy, as well as professional practice. But while the sector continues to think through the implications of the pandemic, there are immediate pressures from policymakers, from media and from students themselves to deliver the kind of student experience that can make up for 18 months of disruption and isolation. So to help us start to mine the rich themes of student experience policy, who better than Monkey's own associate editor, Jim Dickinson. Welcome, Jim. Uh, Jim, you've been spending the summer training new student union officers. What's been your highlight? Oh, well, I mean, uh, all sorts, really. Probably the highlight was a couple of weeks ago, I turned up to a student union and, you know, we were about 45 minutes into a session and I was in kind of full flow. And um, I all all of the participants uh, said, drink! <laughs> and what I was I, like, you said? I was like, blimey, it's only quarter 11 in the morning. You're savages here. And apparently I'd used the word pedagogy. <laughs> All <laughs> right. <laughs> Which apparently, you know, was was part of their sort of code. For, you know, don't you know the members of staff at their union all summer had been using kind of you know jargon words, and uh, this is the last thing they wanted. And so, you know, at various other points, then throughout the rest of the day, we were pretending to be drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, on that note, I suppose if, if you're an SU listener to this podcast, uh, apologies in advance. And uh, we, we, 
And you know, rest assured, Jim and I will be taking many shots in the course of this of this of this conversation. Um, but I mean, on a on a, on a serious note, I mean, it sounds like you've been having a lot of fun. But I mean, of course, these are these are the same students who, who uh, in many cases, completed the NSS this year, and um, you know, and they they are kind of facing quite a challenge, aren't they? They're having to you know lobby their institutions for for you know and, and represent student expectations, and um, and you know, there's a lot there's quite a lot of pressure on them as well to kind of deliver deliver the student experience this year. So, I mean, what have they been telling you about what their hopes and expectations are? It, it is really hard to overestimate just how tainted some of the language is that was deployed this time last year when we were trying to panicking about deferrals. So, for example, the phrase blend, it has been impossible. I must, you know, I've been to about 25 students unions so far this summer. It's impossible to use the phrase or write it up on a sheet of flip chart without it causing derision, howls of laughter, gallows humour. I mean, it is really, I mean, you can't say it. (laughs) And some of that, I think, is about um, people kind of looking back on what was a spectacularly kind of grim experience for lots of people and more grim, I think, than lots of us in the sector realise with our actual chair that is our chair and our Wi-Fi that works <laughs> uh, uh, and so on. But also, I think it reflects a bunch of things about um, mood music that was issued about the student experience this time last year that for not particularly for universities, it wasn't particularly universities' fault, although you can have an argument over you know under or overselling but that didn't pan out it wasn't as described and so you know there's lots of students unions right now in the middle of trying to kind of build up students optimism take part in the kind of you know the the the, the sort of <laughs> music that gets issued at this time of year that's about you know students kind of building back their mental health and coming back to a kind of you know fun experiences that are still very very cautious given you know how it panned out for them and I mean, and they have reason to be, don't they? I mean, we we can't we cannot be confident that although the plan is for everyone to come back on campus and have a lovely time, that that will be sustainable into the, in, you know, into the autumn term. Well, this is it. So, um, th- not only are the kind of prospects for what will happen still, you know, fairly vague. I mean, I was saying to someone the other day, someone was trying to persuade me, Jim, it's all going to be all right. You know, we're slowly coming out of the pandemic and so on. I said, you've got to put your head back into where we were this time last year, where, you know, we were into late August and, you know, we would <laughs> help out to eat out. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Everything was back. So, that idea that it was all going to be fine was fine but then of course on the other hand you've got a bunch of people for whom um the last thing they would want it to be is fine there's a bunch of people with long covid there's a bunch of people who perhaps have lost someone during the pandemic there's a bunch of people who are immunocompromised who are very worried about coming back onto campus being in packed out lecture theatres and it, it has always been the case since the day one of the pandemic reconciling the interests of the people who grasp at safety and the people who grasp at um, freedom. It's all, you know, every day that, that row has played out on Twitter, but it continues to be there now in a way that um, is genuinely uncomfortable as the country slowly, you know, air quotes, reopens. Yes. And then that, that, that I mean, that will really affect the kind of the, the day-to-day ability of uh, of universities, of researchers, of, of kind of people doing learning and teaching to, uh, I guess, explain what they're doing and talk about what they're doing in ways that don't feel compromised or um, in ways or in, in ways that sort of cut through and resonate with people who are nervous, I guess, and or, or perhaps cynical about what the intentions are and what's actually possible. You know, the, the gap between promise and delay. 
You know, there's absolutely no doubt that in some cases, some of the decisions being made about the conversion of hours of teaching into things that can only happen online rather than things that used to happen face to face is being done in a really kind of clever and sophisticated way where there's been lots of thought put in about access and, you know, <laughs> drink, two fingers, pedagogy and so on. But there's also no doubt that in other cases, those are highly, highly defensive moves, which are about being able to charge international students that can't get into the country and not having the artificial constraint of the size of a lecture theatre being a bar to the number of students you recruit. And, and the problem is you only need a couple of courses or a couple of institutions where those two things that I've talked about are obviously the reason why to cause mass kind of cynicism, distrust in an environment where we're desperate for, for people to, to trust us again and so on amongst students. And at some point that will feed through to their representatives. And, you know, one of the things that I'd say about that is one of the things that strikes me quite often working with students unions in higher education is you can have the vast majority of institutions or the vast majority of a community within an institution doing things for the right reasons. If a couple of people do things for the wrong reasons, that spreads very, very quickly. You're only as trusted as the least trustworthy person in your kind of group, you know, the <clears throat> group of vice chancellors or group of academics or whatever it might be and that that poses real challenges for the kind of sector where um, you know, there's still elements of the way of a kind of feudal craft system where, to some extent, we very slowly kind of move a community with us and 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 carry, you know, both the most brilliant minds and also some of the most problematic kind of behaviours. I think uh, it it is really interesting that you should frame it that way because I mean, as as you know, I'm a kind of um, obsessive optimist, and so, some of the stuff that's been coming out, you know, that I've heard, think, you know, thinking that I've heard going on in the sector, I genuinely find really quite exciting. Um, so I'm talking about, I guess, uh, you know, a new appreciation of the value of community and social learning and understanding that, you know, interaction actually is important. Um, uh, but also, you know, and what I see is very, um, certainly a strong awareness of diversity and inclusion um, in ways that perhaps are slightly different from, from, from where they were before, um, you know, as well as all perhaps, you know, there's, there's some quite interesting stuff probably going on with technology in, in, in parts of the sector and, and whether that kind of then translates into something that looks like a hybrid learning environment, I think, you know, sort of remains to be seen. But I suppose what you're saying, you know, if people who really want to investigate those things and who, and who, uh, you know, who might, who might, who might wish to kind of roll out practice uh, are, are are going to have to be quite thoughtful, perhaps sort of with have their political antenna up about how they how they do that. Yeah, well, look, I mean, there's a few things about that. First of all, um, when I th when students join higher education, there's 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 you know there's no doubt that they carry with them a set of assumptions about education, how it's delivered, the way in which it's delivered that is effective, that they have carried with them from previous educational experiences, and we can't discount. The idea that just because the, you know higher education in, in, at its absolute best has rapidly moved online, has rapidly pivoted online in certain ways, that that isn't an experience that people will have had prior to higher education. And <laughs> just because we've been getting used to it for 18 months doesn't mean that they've been experiencing anything other than something perhaps potentially more shambolic or hard to access or whatever before they enter. There's two other things, though. 
one thing that does strike me is that narrow casting, particularly asynchronous materials, is, is you know, really interesting insofar as the way that has kind of caught on on YouTube. Yeah, we, we, we now have, you know, my kids sit all day watching relatively low budget, but very, relatively well produced material that is engaging and so on. You know, narrow casting is here, but they don't pay for it. And nor do I. And there's something really important built in here in terms of our assumptions of value that are going to be very difficult to kind of get across. This idea that although it's cost us a lot of money in terms of staff time and perhaps production support and so on, people generally are not ascribing significant levels of value um, to asynchronous recorded material. And that is going to continue to be a big challenge for people, I think. But the other one, Debbie, that I talk about a lot is... Um, we've all been on the, the three or four day conference, right? We've all arrived there um, at the registration desk and been told, you know, here's where the opening plenary is and here's where the various kind of workshops and breakout sessions are. Um, what none of us have ever experienced, I think, is turning up at one of those events and being told that the opening plenary and two or three of the other major sessions are going to be online and we now need to return to our hotel room to watch them. And and for me, I'm not being facetious about that. For me, the thing that's interesting about that is we have um, distance learning as a kind of mode that has a funding support system attached to it and so on. We have in-person residential learning where you turn up to a city and you have to live there. We actually don't have hybrid modes of attendance. So whilst we might have developed quite cleverly, for really good reasons, hybrid teaching and learning experiences, we actually haven't really developed hybrid modes of attendance. And that is going to continue to be a problem for people who, when they happen to pick the modules they happen to pick, haven't actually got many hours where it justifies them paying out the rent for being there. <laughs> so you know, in the in the medium term, I think we're going to have to think really creatively. About it's it's a it's a structural, it's a, it's a structural yeah. issue. We're going to have to think creatively about hybrid <laughs> modes of attendance. Yeah, you need to, need to challenge the plenary workshop structure, not necessarily. Yeah, rather than kind of saying, oh well, this bit of it is now online. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. about the overall package, the overall experience, and where those kind of hours, if we still think of them as hours, those mm. components okay. sit in the overall week. And certainly, and you know, and students and policymakers will 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 see it that way. You know, it's kind of what, what what's the kind of output, you know, output for the money. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Know, or, or enough people will for, for that for that to be part part of the picture, even if that's not how we would prefer it to be. I mean, okay. So, what what then would you say would be if you're if if, if you're someone who wants to gather evidence in the next three to three to twelve months, and you want to under, you know what what are the kind of research questions that you would have? One one thing that I would say is I, I am guessing that, and I would be very disappointed if this wasn't happening. I'm guessing that. Uh, there's a bunch of people somewhere that are seeking to work out from a learning gain perspective whether or not the kind of revisions to a particular subject or a particular clutch of modules in a university's changes as a result of the pandemic, that you know, the, these good things that we've apparently learned over the past 18 months are good from, as I say, from a learning gain perspective, you know, whether people are achieving more, whether that's closing attainment gaps and so on in terms of changes to assessment, so on and so on. All those are really important. I worry a lot about the people who would instinctively reject the idea that alongside doing that, we measure perceptions of value. It is possible that a bunch of people will come out the back of this um, doing better, 
learning more and perceiving that their experience was of even worse value, worse value than it was previously. And we can't just ignore that. So, of course, it is the case that teaching and learning professionals and senior managers in universities are going to think about the teaching and learning stuff. But we do have to carry people with us, particularly when they're making a lifelong financial contribution and when the taxpayer is making a contribution. We can't just say, well, we know best, look at our little pocket of research. So we need to understand people's perceptions of of value along the way. And then the third bit is, obviously it is the case that if I look at seven hours of, you know, kind of content that I've now reworked in a new way, some of which is more interactive, some of which is more diverse and so on, that I am on one level or another able to say to people at the end of each hour, at the end of a module, how did you find that? But what we obviously have to do is think about the mental health impacts and the overall kind of, you know, experiencing of the programme impacts. Because if we've learned anything, Debbie, we've definitely learned that so much of the experience is about what happens outside of those hours. Learning is social. Social is learning. Not only are people learning from kind of social activities, but people are also learning in a social way, in a way that was harmed during the pandemic because they didn't really friends. Yes, and understanding what that experience means, both in terms terms of value, but also in terms of the sorts of outcomes that may, might not necessarily show up as, as learning outcomes or as, or as defined learning outcomes, um, but, but it's all part of that broader kind of, I guess, graduate attribute piece um, is probably a sort of underplumbed seam as I, as I mix, mix my metaphors horrifically. But that's <laughs> but if you have a point, if you're going to build if you're going to build back student experience, you have to remember that it's the whole student experience. It's not just the the bit the bit where you can kind of see them and the whole thing's kind of curated and managed. It's 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 the rest of it as well. And and you know the, you know the thing I would stress about that is that, that that there's a really dangerous kind of seam of commentary on social media that says, okay, you've got the teaching and learning here in this box, and then you've got people. Uh, you know, in having enjoying themselves on in social events and in clubs and societies over here. And for me, what that misses is all of the stuff in between where people are learning together in rooms where they just go and book a room or when they're sat in a social learning space or, where they're, or they're sat in a kitchen or where they're chatting on WhatsApp about their assignment or when they're actually chatting on WhatsApp about the synchronous piece of teaching that they are in. And of course, that stuff is easy to miss and not look at. But my God, I mean, I've, I've just spent hours this summer with student officers, not just education officers, but student officers of all sorts, just going on and on about how difficult they found that kind of, you know, second year of undergraduate experience or how difficult they found their postgraduate year if they've just become a sab off the back of being a postgrad in comparison to the year where they could see people and bounce ideas and so on and so on. It's really, really important, that stuff. Jim, that is a brilliant way to start us off. Thank you so much. Next up, we're taking a deeper dive into two key themes of the pandemic, student engagement and international student experience. So joining me on The Wonky Show, we've got two fabulous guests. Tom Lowe is the Head of Student Engagement and Employability at Winchester and co-editor of A Handbook for Student Engagement in Higher Education. Tom, uh, normally we ask about highlight of the week, but for the purposes of this podcast, I'm going to ask, what's been your highlight of the summer? 
Thanks, Debbie. Great to be here. Um, certainly the highlight of my summer was attending two of my childhood friends' weddings this summer. And I think that was something we didn't necessarily expect to do this summer. So that's definitely my highlight. Uh, long awaited indeed. Uh, and uh, from near La Rochelle in France, one of the most exotic locations I think we've ever had on The Wonky Show, it's Elspeth Jones, who's Emeritus Professor of the Internationalisation of Higher Education at Leeds Beckett University and series editor of the Rutledge series Internationalisation in HE. Elspeth, what's been your highlight of the summer? Oh, hi, Debbie. It's great to be here. Well, um, we've been trying to get to our house in France uh, all through the pandemic and there's been changes in regulations on both sides of the channel so finally got here and I'm very happy to be here. Mm, and, uh, and I hope the sun's been shining for you as well. <laughs> yeah it has. <laughs> Unlike here in the UK. Uh, so, so let's get started. I mean as you, as you both know I mean this is a really um, interesting year for the student experience uh, to put it mildly uh, and, and you know universities I think are looking to the year ahead and thinking about how not just how to kind of um, you know help you know, re-engage with students or, or, or kind of bring, bring students back to something that, that might be approaching normality, but also how to, how to move the student experience forward, to learn the lessons of the pandemic, to, uh, to, you know, to, uh, to, and to imp- implement that in, in, in new and fresh ways, uh, as, as we kind of, as we make our way out of COVID. So Tom, I mean, you've worked on student engagement your whole career. Um, and you've, and of course you've co- co-edited the Rutledge handbook. Um, and you know, you've been very hands-on throughout the pandemic with, with your team at Winchester. In, in your experience, I mean, how were you applying some of that kind of theoretical knowledge and practice in this incredibly distinctive context? What a year to reflect upon in, uh, in regards to student engagement. I think in the last year, we have seen a generation of students and a generation of learners, no matter what level they are at, whether primary, secondary, um, further education or higher education, all experience experience, um, an element of forced distance learning, and perhaps an element of unprepared distance learning. Um, I think back to lockdown one, I think the whole country went into distance learning overnight. And when you're looking at student engagement or students' engagements with an area of education like higher education, it's been really fascinating, but also terrifying to reflect on what our global sector has gone through. Um, There's two areas I'd like to pick up, really. One is student engagement in the most broadest sense, or the most core area of higher education, which is student engagement in learning. Every student engages in their curriculum in some way to simply be a student and to simply pass as a student in higher education. And that learning, that core element of student engagement, which 100% of students take part in, and my definition of an engaged student is a student who's just enrolled on their course, was completely shattered and experienced an an incredible earthquake and, and a seismic change, which many of us didn't expect when we went back to work after Christmas in January 2020. And perhaps many of us are still not comfortable 100% that we are getting it right at the moment, though we're definitely colleagues across the whole HE sector are giving 110% to make sure we do everything we can. But student engagement became a lot less active, a lot less um, a lot less in person, and it became a lot less personal. And I think the promise of a Western higher education university experience is a face-to-face campus experience, which gives you the memories and um, the best time of your life, some of the best friends you ever have, and some fantastic engagements, whether that's in the class, being inspired by a lecturer, meeting some of the best friends in your halls of residence, um, maybe learning something that's going to lead to a great career, but also sports teams and societies and the student union, all of these fantastic things that we know higher education for, a lot of those elements of student engagement rely on the physical. They rely on people being in a room at the same time. Now, we can get around those and do things online, just like we're having a conversation today, but it's a challenge still to recreate that same personal element when we are not able to be in the room together and many of us have our cameras off. So it's been challenging, though there has been some amazing innovation, which perhaps we'll talk about later on, especially in regards to 
the great convenience higher education is now able to be engaged with. For example, we don't necessarily even need to leave our houses and commute an hour and a half across London. The other area is student voice. And I think student voice has had a huge focus in UK higher education, but globally, um, definitely for the last 10 years, uh, longer in some nations. And we have prioritised through the QAA in the UK and NUS um, to be engaging our students in their experience, listening to students' voices. Now, again, that's something we, the most pure form of student voice is when people are in the room speaking to their staff members at the university. But in the last 10 years, there's also been lots of technology solutions for student voice come forward. Obviously, one of them is the online survey, but others are different apps and technologies where you can give your student voice. But Adam Fletcher, who's a scholar who talks about student voice from kindergarten to university level in the United States, highlights that actually it doesn't matter how, if you're gathering students' voices, that's fine. But if that student voice interaction isn't meaningful, if we are not there to be able to respond to that feedback and appreciate that feedback and have a conversation about that feedback, things begin to go wrong. And I think we've seen some of the largest, most loud student voice I have ever experienced in my career of higher education during COVID-19, rightly so, because everybody has been in this crisis together and it's actually dwarfed the tuition fee rise of 2011-12-13. But um, we haven't necessarily always got it right as a sector because we haven't necessarily been able to respond in the same way because we've been responding to tweets or we've been responding to um, feedback mechanisms or we've been responding to emails rather than being able to speak to people in a space. And I think HE is a lot about getting people in a space together. So for me, the two main areas of student engagement that have shifted and have been impacted and where I've had to draw on literature and thinking around student engagement is that core area of student engagement with learning but then the substantial foundation area of student engagement which is student voice mm. yeah that's fascinating and i mean there, there is this kind of enormous debate unfolding it's interesting that you, you sort of you really emphasize that in person because i mean we know students are calling for a return to in person and, of, and of, of course they are because that's 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 their experience but we are also hearing from some universities that they've seen student engagement in learning certainly that kind of core learning uh, you know curriculum piece uh, go up during the pandemic, um, possibly in part because students have got you know very little else to do and they've been stuck in their rooms, you know, and and, and really all they've all they've been able to do is kind of watch online lectures and that sort of thing. Um, but there is there is this sense that that um, that te- you know that te- technology could 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 act in in, in the year ahead in, in a in a well developed hybrid. Uh, context to improve student engagement or, or to allow perhaps a greater diversity of students to engage. Is that something that you're thinking about? Well, first of all, imagine if we went through COVID-19 during the 90s in higher education or even earlier, we would not have had the fantastic technology platforms that we now have that enable us to connect with individuals throughout the world in an almost instant way. Um, I think HE would have just had to outright cancel or maybe even they would have ploughed through COVID, I don't know. Um, I think looking ahead and thinking about the big debate that is going on right now, not just in HE communities like Wonky, but even in the press, uh, the weekend just behind us, we saw the Daily Mail headlines talking, uh, almost calling some universities cowards for not returning face to face. And we are not decided. We are not decided as a university community. We are not decided as individual universities. And we are not decided as a society about what the future of education is, because absolutely we cannot ignore the accessibility benefits of online education. The fact that a commuting student no longer has to pay money and to take an hour of their time to travel all the way to campus just for an hour-long meeting with a lecturer to go all the way back. Similar with well-being services. Anything that's one-to-one or anything that's short, I think we have to keep online. But we can't ignore that most of our UK providers are campus-based universities. They might be in the centre of a city, but they have a heart, they have a campus. And the question is begin, beginning to be asked, and Dr Zachary Spires asking this question, 
what's the purpose of a campus anymore if we put everything online? Do we need these great buildings like many corporate companies are saying? Do we need these great big office blocks anymore? Well, if we're doing more and more online and campuses and spaces of learning are places where you will walk around and you'll have conversations and you'll meet people and you'll go to the library. Well, if we put all, all, all of that online, do we need the other space still? And who do we listen to here? Do we listen to our current students and there are a huge chunk of our current students who are absolutely praising the fantastic abilities of being able to engage online from home. It's very convenient. It's very accessible. It doesn't cost as much in finance time or time time or it's fantastic for parents or anyone with a caring responsibility. And also the information can be slowed down or taken at students' own individual pace, which is fantastic for students and for neurodiverse students. But there's another argument going on right now as well. And perhaps that's because we're societally induced to think that HE has to take place on a lush green university campus like we see in the American movies. If we have our students asking for it, there's a bit of many universities that think, well, we need to provide that. But then I think there's also many universities that have big international student cohorts. And this is my own personal opinion that maybe think, well, actually, we can't deliver everything on campus because otherwise our international student cohorts might not be able to come. And then we might lose that tuition fee. So there's a big debate between the two. Now, I guess I can only personally answer myself, but I am an extrovert um, both. So being an extrovert, I naturally want to be around people and probably naturally favour face-to-face. But I think this is a personal thing. And just like we, I think we, we're seeing um, just this week, we've seen some stories about the future of the workplace. We will likely see job, more jobs being advertised that this is a work-from-home job. And I think in the future, people will choose working at home versus in office working and now we've all experienced it we kind of know what it's like and we know if we like it and we also know if we hate it actually we have a whole generation of learners no matter what level they are at who have experienced distance learning and they will know if they like it and they will know if they hate it and perhaps they will vote with their feet let, let me come to you because uh you know tom's talking about the the, the diversity of students and and, and and lots of different needs and um and you know as editor of the internationalizing higher education series for rutledge i mean you, you know you you must have been thinking very kind of hard about what that international experience has has been like Obviously, during the pandemic, it's made international travel, international mobility very difficult. I mean, from your perspective, what have we lost um, in terms of creating that rich international learning environment? Yeah, well, we we have we have lost a lot, and in other ways, we've gained, I think. But um, if I just want, I just want to come back to something that Tom was talking about, and that's the in terms of uh, students being online and being able to access. Uh, their courses digitally. Um, we've got to remember that not everybody has the same range of skills as everybody else. And they, and indeed, not everybody has access to the internet in the same way. Um, I mean, if we're thinking about international students, for example, there are many countries in Africa for, as a, just as an example, where people have had real difficulty getting access to the internet and a- access to digital technology. We, um, we, we must also remember that probably there are many parts of rural Britain where access to technology or access to the the internet is much more limited than it than it is in cities so we're in danger of thinking about the you know the majority of people who who do have good access who do have good skills and forgetting that there are lots of people who maybe don't and this may be true for for example mature students or people who are coming to university for the first time so we've got to bear in mind the diversity of our student body in in many different ways including uh access and capability with uh, technology and the internet. Um, and also thinking about international students more broadly, um, we must remember that it's not simply students not being able to travel, 
but also uh, some international students actually stranded in the country of their destination, can't get back to home, can't see their family, and they've been stuck in, you know, in an environment they're perhaps unfamiliar with, not being able to really spend time with other people. And uh, so there have been so many problems, haven't there? Um, but I think in, in terms of um, a, a lack of uh, mobility generally, obviously it's prevented perhaps recruitment of international students which uh, contribute to the finances of universities, but it's also made it more difficult, I think, for people to uh, engage in the classroom, as Tom has mentioned. Um, you know, that encountering diversity and encountering a range of different people from different backgrounds of all different kinds of backgrounds, whether it be international, uh, different ages, different abilities, different, you know, cu uh, cultural contexts. These are the kinds of things which our university experience also facilitates. And it can be, it's really important that students are able to engage with people that they view as different from themselves in order to raise their own, um, perspectives change their mindsets think differently about perhaps things that they've been used to to think differently about how you know perhaps the way I've always done things isn't necessarily the best way perhaps think they do things differently in other countries perhaps different cultures have got ways of doing things and um and and working with each other to uh that 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 can help me can help my future can help my life as a, a citizen or as a professional and so it's that exposure and engagement with people from different backgrounds of all kinds that is the benefit of a, a campus experience, isn't it? You don't, it isn't quite the same as engaging um, online. I mean, I've been, I've been very fortunate. In fact, I worked out there was one week where I was actually speaking or engaging with people on, on six continents within a single week. Now, obviously I couldn't have done that if I'd been traveling. Um, and, you know, this is a combination of uh, through teaching and, and work with students. Um, but so there, you know, there are incredible benefits, but that's assuming that I can get in touch with people that I want to get in touch with, isn't it? And, and that they've got the same access to technology. Um, just a, a, sh a brief plug. Uh, there's a book in, uh, in my series by Shantan Chang and Catherine Gomez that's recently been published about uh, digital experiences of international students and the danger of assuming that everybody has the same set of capabilities and access, whether it's from, you know, if you're trying to recruit students and if you're trying to teach them and if you're trying to work with alumni, you know, right, the whole student life cycle, we make way too many assumptions about our students' capabilities. And I think that's a, a really important point to bear in mind. But I mean, you, you mentioned also that we gained something and, you know, when you're talking about technology and the ability to kind of reach beyond one's immediate context, and we're certainly, you know, throughout the year, we've heard feedback from students and from staff sort of saying, we're doing all kinds of really interesting stuff here because because the technology has made that possible. I mean, how's that been playing out in the international space? Yeah, and again, I think we, you know, as as Tom said, it was unprepared. We were thrown into it, weren't we? And we all had to suddenly um, find new skills that we we hadn't realised we we, uh, we 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 didn't have for the current situation. Um, the, the, there are lots of interesting developments, though, and I think the the, the problem has been with um, internationalisation is that people. Governments, institutions, individuals often um, have assumed that the key thing is to get students into another country and then all will be magically, uh, you know, we'll all gain these insights and skills that we never had before. Um, and that's not the case. I mean, we need to we need to provide interventions and, and support students who are traveling to other countries and 
we can't assume they're going to gain these skills simply by being in another country or working with international students. We've got to facilitate that. Um, so the assumption that mobility is the answer to everything has been questioned through these times. And I really welcome that because I'm a, um, my, my, my great interest is internationalization of the curriculum and how we can actually reach a hundred percent of our students, not the seven percent or whatever it is that, that currently, uh, are, or in most recent years have been mobile. Um, the European target was 20% by 2020 and very few, relatively few countries have actually met that target. So we're talking about really a very elite number of students. It's a small number of students who get to travel and focusing all our efforts on the mobility experience means that we don't focus enough on internationalizing the curriculum for all of our students and providing international dimensions, alternative approaches, different mindsets, helping to work with them to develop the kinds of skills they're going to need to live and work in a multicultural society, basically, is what we're talking about. And and that's the focus of internationalization, as far as I'm concerned. Well, that, that's fascinating, because I suppose that there, I might have made the argument that the pandemic came at, at the worst possible time. If you think about, you know, we had we had Brexit, and then we had the transition out of the EU. And um, and, and and then, but you know, before before you know, Britain could really kind of re- rethink where what its place where what was in the world and how where universities might sit within that. You know, the pandemic came and and, and made life sort of ex- extra complicated. But I suppose maybe what you're saying is is that the pandemic opened up opportunities to actually think about internationalisation in a different way. I mean, how might how might you see that kind of playing forward as as we return to something approaching normal in the, in the year ahead? Well, there are certainly lots of examples of uh, people taking. Um, the, the internationalization opportunities within the curriculum more seriously. So, um, the, the COIL, uh, program, which is a kind of collaborative online international learning programs, that kind of approach has become much more common, I think, uh, where people have been interested and tried to engage their students with people, individuals or classrooms of people or, or people on Zoom in different countries. Uh, and there have been more examples of that happening. Um, there's also been a big increase in virtual internships, for example, not simply virtual mobility, but virtual internships where students are working with international companies in, in different parts of the world or indeed international companies in their own country. So, but actually doing all of this online uh, has been a facilitation in a sense of, of rethinking the way, the way we, uh, we think about teaching and learning um, in, in an international context. Uh, that we need to be thinking more about how we get our students to um, adopt a, a, a mindset which allows them to think differently. How is my subject considered and delivered in different parts of the world? What are, what are the things I should be thinking about which are relevant in different dimensions of society? And how can I work with people uh, who are... Uh, perhaps not from the same background as myself, what can I learn from them and so on. And these are things which can be facilitated, I think, to some extent online. And and obviously, the if we can ever get back to a, an in-person experience, so much the better. Um, the, the Council of Europe has done some really interesting work on what they call competences for democratic culture. And they look at things like skills, values, attitudes, which need to be we need to develop amongst our students amongst our our, our populations in fact um 
to to live and work together in harmony and uh, or to try to to try the best we can and i think we've got a great opportunity in in, in higher education to at least try and take forward those kinds of uh, areas which are so important for making our society better in the long run and uh, for perhaps shall we say getting over some of the the schisms that have been caused by um, or have been facilitated through the, the Brexit vote and uh, the, the way society has developed since then. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Tom and Elspeth. It's been a really fascinating conversation. Finally, I caught up with Stephanie Marshall to help unpack the challenges for leaders in the student experience in the year ahead. Really pleased to welcome to the show Stephanie Marshall, Vice Principal for Education at Queen Mary University London, um, and of course, former uh, Senior Executive and Chief Executive at the Higher Education Academy, and a long and distinguished career in, in learning and teaching uh, academia, of course, and uh, and also the author of the Handbook of Learning and Teaching in Higher Education. So Stephanie, um, I just thought you would have such an interesting perspective on this question of building back student experience higher, um, because you're bringing that uh, academic, you know, that ac- academic informed uh, insight to your practice as a leader of learning and teaching but obviously the pandemic uh, has been a very very distinctive experience um, for all leaders of higher education and um, you know what do you feel like you know now that perhaps you didn't know at the start of the, of the pandemic? Oh gosh Debbie where do I begin with that? Um, it's probably so much what do I know now that I didn't know before but what has been exceptionally reinforced and that's been really really important. I think the key thing is if we're putting students at the centre of learning which is exactly where they should be listen to the students better, discuss with them more, get to know them better and work with them. And I just feel working with our student union exec officers, particularly over the past year, we've had such an incredibly hard year, but have forged the most amazing relationships in terms of supporting each other. Um, I guess the whole move to online, second point I'd make is the whole move to online was fascinating, really, because suddenly what does designing an online module look like? And I thought, oh, gosh, we really have to go back to basics here because some people don't really understand kind of learning outcomes and how that translates into module design and how that interrelates with graduate attributes. Kind of things that maybe we just took a bit too much for granted. And of course, we have them on our new to teaching programs. So, I mean, I went right back to program and module design and all that wonderful work by John Biggs on solo taxonomy. And I thought, this is so simple. Let's let's remind everybody what the building blocks are um, in terms of our, our thinking. Scaffolding, I'd throw out that term. And as I said, we've got to even offer more scaffolding than we did before, you know, Vygotsky's notions of scaffolding. Um, and had to kind of re-go through that with a number of people as well. So, so I think some of these basics, level indicators, let's go through Bloom's taxonomy. It was almost going into the, the annals of time in terms of things that we need to remind ourselves are really, really important when thinking about uh, program and, and module design. Um, of course, you mentioned the uh, Taylor and Francis uh, edition five, teaching and learning in higher education. And I thought, oh gosh, I can actually pull that out now and start getting people in the disciplines to look at the different hyperlinks in there as well as to resources they should should and could be using that will actually save them time in terms of when they're they're putting the modules together. Um, I think in terms of other learning, it is interesting when you reflect on your own practice and your own research and writing and think, actually, am I doing what I profess to do? And I think in terms of my own leadership, I did... 
I did, Debbie, reflect an awful lot on am I leading to the best of my ability in terms of supporting the whole community in, in this shift that's required as a result of the pandemic. And um, you might not be as familiar with Strategic Leadership of Change in Higher Education, which is another Taylor and Francis um, publication of mine, um, where I proposed a new model of leadership, which was based much more on the research and what I knew about leadership, I guess, from being a, a chief executive, but I just thought, how is this applying in the pandemic? And in that book, I outlined this model E4, which is about engaging, energizing, empowering, and remaining engaged. And I thought more than ever with the pandemic, that remaining engaged bit was absolutely crucial because I just thought it's not one, th it's one thing working together with an infrastructure of support through deans, um, through um, school representatives, directors of education, program directors. And we, we met fortnightly in terms of kind of managing the whole process together. But I just thought it requires me not just to be leading this, but when, I, when I'm saying, for example, we could really do with some training on this and being engaged in that training with them so I could hear what they were saying and, and really st staying true to the journey and I think that that at times was difficult because it has been a long 18 months. But I think it was that let's work collectively in this journey to see that we come out the other end. And maybe that coming out the other end is, is a bit naive because we're not nowhere near out the other end. But mm. it's felt like a really collective effort. And I have really, really appreciated great staff, great students in that collective effort, probably more so than I could have ever imagined. I mean, to me, what you're describing sounds a bit like, I guess, what I think of as praxis in the sense that you're kind of trying to triangulate what you know and see in your day-to-day -day and, and what you understand from, from um, engaging with the kind of wider literature and, and, and evidence base. And, um, and, and I suppose engagement is a really is, is a kind of interesting framing for that because, because you're sort of saying, I'm not just thinking about some of these kind of uh, er texts in learning and teaching. I'm, I'm listening to academics and students the whole time as well and, and, and sort of having and, and trying to kind of make that knowledge meaningful in a, in, in a particular context. I mean, how... What surprised you about that about about that process? I know you said you know you're surprised that everybody or, or kind of I guess appreciated that everyone was able to come together and kind of and, and undergo this process. But were, were there aspects of of things that were happening that that it, it, it that felt underexplored or, or that that were that that, that uh, where you kind of I suppose collectively came to a new understanding of what it was you were trying to do? I think that's a really really interesting question. I think the notion of praxis. Absolutely right. I'd be with you 100% there because I think that's as a as an educationalist, as a leader, I've always felt that the praxis was the way I operated. But for whatever reason, it felt more real. Um, probably we were working really, really long days, but still, nevertheless, um, with it being such a massive enterprise and thinking we've got a really tight time frame for getting this right as well, because uh, guidance was changing. Things happened overnight, of course, with going online. I guess what surprised me perhaps with was maybe the speed which with with which we were able to corral support but also what what maybe surprised me and it shouldn't have done really was how quickly junior colleagues stepped up to the breach in terms of what I'd call stepping up to leadership hey you know what I I really I, I'm, I'm a tech savvy um, junior academic I can help I, use me across faculties, I don't mind. And we suddenly saw this emergence of all these junior colleagues who were actually positively excited about the opportunity that afforded them. And, and I think that's that's the point at which probably I felt actually I'm going much more into stewardship mode here 
because my responsibility is as and, and maybe even my own perception of self had changed very much from leading it into very much stewardship in terms of corralling wherever there was support I needed to draw on that and and help it take us along so it and then there must be a number of people in the sector that, that were think, thinking broadly similar things because I just think I have to say, Wonk HG, I think you've been absolutely brilliant in terms of some of those blogs that were coming out so regularly in, in such a timely fashion. Um, and I'm just thinking about the J- J- Jilly Salmon's blog came just at that time. People might remember that blog, which was about the various pivot points in terms of the move to Blended. Mm, yes, we'll, um, we'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, it, to me, it was brilliant because I then used that in, in kind of, let's look at this and, and just use kind of the diagram and had various sessions with program directors, which was easy because I was doing it on Teams so I could get everybody there at short notice. I could regularly get people involved in different two-hour sessions as well, um, sometimes people with, with toddlers on their knees, et cetera. But that, that flexibility that was afforded us uh, in terms of getting together and looking at things and saying, right, let's look. This, this is what Jilly Salmon, who's really, really eminent in the field of, of, of I, uh, IT, blended learning, online learning, what she's saying about what we need to do next. And it actually, and it mirrored exactly where we were at that point in terms of by last summer, thinking we've got to spend this summer really ratcheting up what we do. We've got to bring in some third-party help. We've got to make sure students are giving us the ongoing feedback as well in terms of whether this stuff is is, is working or not. So I suppose it was it was a nice position to be in as well in terms of the stewardship role and kind of taking a bit of leading from behind rather than, always leading from the front mm. and that's, that makes sense it, it absolutely does and it's certainly something that um is, is is meaningful even in a post-pandemic environment when it's less less kind of high crisis high high uh high anxiety kind of situation as yes. well yeah your, your point about kind of I guess you know returning to the old favorites um particularly around learning design and delivering mm-hmm. high quality learning design I think that'll resonate a lot with, with with a lot of people because of course it was this kind of enormous module redesign for uh particularly for the online environment and then I guess some of those skills will translate to the future even if you know lots of modules will no longer be fully online which of course you know is, is, is what we're all hoping but thinking about the wider student experience I mean I feel like so much what we learned about the pandemic was about um uh, about, I guess, the need for student community, um, and about and, and about perhaps the extent to which universities are able to foster student community, or or, or, to, or to the extent to which that had been actively fostered um, as part of a learning strategy. Um, I mean, that that that's that's one that leapt out at me, and I think you know lots of universities will be thinking about going forward. But are there, are there things about the kind of wider student experience that you're now thinking we need to take a more active role in? But actually, maybe the literature isn't as well, as well developed, and we need to we need to be thinking about. In, you know, um, in a deeper way. Well, I think there's a number of things, but one that one that struck me that we introduced um, during the pandemic, which has to con- has to con- uh, continue, is the use of town halls, because it's been so easy for head of head of school to be able to hold a town hall meeting with the students and to to get um, feedback on what's been working well, what not so well, and then we we've upped the number of staff student liaison committees that we had, so we were having them fortnightly originally, so we could get that feedback as to w- what was working well the number of them that said they so so enjoyed and appreciated the town hall meetings and having the head of school you know seeking out their views and asking them how they were settling in or you know what's working well what 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 are any of your anxieties about the assessment that's forthcoming etc so it would be really interesting to to explore I think a lot more in terms of what has 
the use of Teams and Zooms enabled us to do that we couldn't do before, that, stu that students suddenly feel we can be so much more engaged as a result of that. And I think there's various touch points where suddenly where they just, have, you know, they could be at home, just click on and you're going to have an overview and an opportunity to ask questions if, if, if you so desire. Yes. Yes. I think, yeah, understanding what student engagement and student voice means in a digital context is a pretty, pretty feel, feels, feels quite urgent. And, 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 uh, and we'll certainly talk, talk about that a bit more yeah. with, um, with uh, Tom Lowe, who's going to, who's going to come on, he's going to come on the podcast as well. Yeah. I mean, are there, do you have, do you have particular kind of um, priorities and plans at Queen Mary in, you know, in terms of thinking about building back the student experience? I know we're, because we're, you know, this is the context for, uh, we've got lots of students coming back. Their education is being disrupted. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are going to, you know, that they will have had they will have had very kind of distinctive sort of experience. I suppose doesn't necessarily mean that they have a lack or or they haven't learned, but they their their, their academic confidence may be a bit lower. They may have experienced kind of challenges with their well being in the past year. So, thinking about that student experience for next year, what you know, what 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 will that what will that look like, and what's kind of front of mind as you're as you're planning for that transition back back to something approaching normal? Yes. Yeah. Um, I think that whole student experience, but being part of communities and staff and student engagement is a really, really central concern of ours, particularly thinking about the students coming in this autumn, given that they'll have had two years of disruption. Uh, to what extent have they been socialised uh, in terms of thinking about what the norms of university might be, given that, you know, sixth form or college or, you know, mature, mature entrance, what has helped them think about what the university will look like this autumn? So I think we'd started getting rather anxious about this back at the end of the last um, calendar year and thought come January, we wanted to start planning um, some ways of engaging different com com student communities. So we went out to the students to say, what sort of communities of practice do you, do you like being involved in? What can we do more about student engagement? So we've worked really, really closely with the students in coming up with what we're calling the Get Ahead program that we, we've started via a website already. So if students are even thinking about Queen Mary, they can join some, some different communities that might be of interest, either disciplinary or just more social and, and um, to do with our societies. For those then that, that had given off firm offers for Queen Mary then, also thinking they could have a body, you know, somebody who's at, who is a student ambassador or a third year, somebody's applied for the role and had the training for the role, so that they they feel they there's one person there if they've got any anxiety or questions they can they can ask. But then part of the deal is then come August, and of course we're already in August, we're then joining up into larger communities. So they were, they're in a sort of smaller family grouping before they even arrive because what we wanted to avoid was any student arriving and feeling completely lost and not knowing quite what to do because they haven't really been interacting that much whilst the, during, during the pandemic. Mm. So student engagement, student communities has been a massive piece for us. And already, uh, I was just talking to some of our student ambassadors on campus yesterday, we're absolutely thrilled. So we've got some really lo lovely students that are hoping that they'll be here um, next year and we're really enjoying working with them. And of course, our student ambassadors are paid as well. So it's great paid employment for our student ambassadors. Um, but we, we're just hoping, I mean, it's just, we're just hoping we will have to monitor and evaluate all the way in terms of is this delivering what we hoped it would be delivered? Because it is a co created mm. package of work. But I think it was around about Easter that we also decided, right, we've, we've, we've worked out the funding for this Get Ahead program. 
actually, you know what? We need it to be for every year and all the time because it's got th- because it's got things like modules on, you know, help with maths, um, help with academic writing. It's got a range of things where we think so. Where we thought actually a number of uh, prospective students are perhaps lacking in this the skill set they need to succeed. So let's get all these things online. And then we thought, actually, you know what? All our students need them. Let's have different levels. And let's have different means of uh, mixed mode. They can do it online or they can do it mixed mode or they can have face-to-face once they get onto campus, subject to us being able to carry on um, in-person mm-hmm. teaching. Yeah. I, but I, th- I mean, I think I think this is a really important point is, is that a lot of the things that will be coming out of the pandemic this year will be things that ought to stand students in good stead for you know many years to come um, and with that in mind I mean you mentioned monitoring and evaluation and I think that that's so important I mean in terms of the evidence you're gathering and about your kind of I guess how, how it's developing our collective understanding um, is that is that something that you're keeping uh, quite quite you know quite quite close to the fore especially if you're thinking this this now becomes a sort of a, a baseline that that you know you don't want to build from. Yeah we, we certainly are Debbie and I think we're also very very aware now that we should start publishing some some more of the findings of what we do and I think we're trying to do a bit more blogging to give other people ideas as to to what they might do I think another thing that our students have really really valued that I'd just like to highlight that we we want to track as well is um, building on our values so make sure our student engagement our student communities are very much based on Queen Mary's values which are number one you won't be surprised to hear is inclusivity absolutely crucial but we felt it's I-PACE. So the second one, P, is for proud. You know, make, making staff and students feel really proud of what we're offering. Well, we can't do that unless we've got a really good offer, and we, which we feel that we have now. But as you say, we've got, we've got the baseline, but we now need to track. So what impact does that have on, on student out, st- the student journey and then ultimately on the student out- outcomes? Um, ambitious. Um, in terms of our I-PACE as well, encouraging everybody to be ambitious about what we can achieve. And I think we're, here we're thinking we achieve more as a collective. We really learned that during the pandemic, that working together has been really powerful. And and which takes me to our, our penultimate um, value, which is collegial. And it shouldn't come as any surprise that the collegiality that emerged in the face of it's all got to go online. Now we've got to work together to, to make this even better. Uh, we need to make sure we carry on with that because it's made people feel rather excited about being part of teams. People that might have been people that might have been quite individualistic before are finding that working in teams has been really rewarding, and they've learned a lot from each other. Mm. And then finally, unsurprisingly, the the E at the end is about um, ethical. Mm. So. And, and the students have really picked up on, on that as well and said, even decision making, as long as we go into any decisions that I made to say, is it a values led decision making process? And that's really helped a lot of things with a lot of things to be able to pre- um, preface any discussions on let's base it on our values. So that's probably a good bit of learning that's come out as well that will continue. And I think help us build back better because A, we can call people out if they aren't kind of values based. And it's also helping us um, that's the baseline. We don't go. We don't go beneath that baseline of our values. Right, that's about it for this week. We'll be back with our regular show from the first week of September. To delve deeper into anything we've discussed today, and to get that exclusive discount on Rutledge titles, you'll find links in the show notes. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for the Wonky Show on your favourite podcast directory, or you can find the feed that you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. So it's thanks to Jim, Tom, Elspeth and Stephanie and to our partners at Rutledge and to the whole of Team Wonky for making the show happen. And until next time, stay wonky. Stay wonky.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.